Hello, and welcome back to Ken Reads the Classics. We continue now with Moby Dick, or The Whale, by Herman Melville. Chapter 131. The Pequod Meets the Delight. The intense Pequod sailed on. The rolling waves and days went by. The life buoy coffin still lightly swung, and another ship, most miserably misnamed the Delight, was descried. As she drew nigh, all eyes were fixed upon her broad beams, called shears, which, in some whaling ships, cross the quarter-deck at the height of eight or nine feet, serving to carry the spare, unrigged, or disabled boats. Upon the stranger's shears were beheld the shattered white ribs and some few splintered planks of what had once been a whale-boat, but you now saw through this wreck, as plainly as you see through the peeled, half-unhinged, and bleaching skeleton of a horse. "'Hast seen the white whale?' "'Look!' replied the hollow-cheeked captain from his taffrail, and with his trumpet he pointed to the wreck. Hast killed him? The harpoon is not yet forged that ever will do that, answered the other, sadly glancing upon a rounded hammock on the deck, whose gathered sides some noiseless sailors were busy in sewing together. Not forged! And snatching Perth's leveled iron from the crotch, Ahab held it out, exclaiming, Look ye, Nantucketer, here in this hand I hold his death. Tempered in blood and tempered by lightning are these barbs, and I swear to temper them triply in that hot place behind the fin where the white whale most feels his accursed life. Then God keep thee, old man, cease thou to that, pointing to the hammock. I bury but one of five stout men who were alive only yesterday, but were dead ere night. Only that one I bury. The rest were buried before they died. You sail upon their tomb. Then turning to his crew, Are you ready there? Place the plank then on the rail and lift the body. So, then, O God, Advancing towards the hammock with uplifted hands, may the resurrection and the life brace forward, up helm, cried Ahab like lightning to his men. But the suddenly started Pequod was not quick enough to escape the sound of the splash that the corpse soon made as it struck the sea. Not so quick indeed, but that some of the flying bubbles might have sprinkled her hull with their ghostly baptism. As Ahab now glided from the dejected delight, the strange life buoy hanging at the Pequod's stern came into conspicuous relief. Hail yonder! Look yonder, men! cried a foreboding voice in her wake. In vain, O ye strangers! Ye fly our sad burial! Ye but turn us your taffrail to show us your coffin! Chapter 132, The Symphony It was a clear, steel-blue day. 
The firmaments of air and sea were hardly separable in that all-pervading azure. Only the pensive air was transparently pure and soft, with a woman's look, and the robust and manlike sea heaved with long, strong, lingering swells, as Samson's chest in his sleep. Hither and thither, on high, glided the snow-white wings of small, unspeckled birds. These were the gentle thoughts of the feminine air. But to and fro in the deeps, far down in the bottomless blue, rushed mighty leviathons, swordfish and sharks, and these were the strong, troubled, murderous thinkings of the masculine sea. But though thus contrasting within... The contrast was only in shades and shadows without. Those two seemed one. It was only the sex, as it were, that distinguished them. Aloft, like a royal czar and king, the sun seemed giving this gentle air to this bold and rolling sea, even as a bride to groom. And at the girdling line of the horizon, a soft and tremulous motion, most seen here at the equator, denoted the fond, throbbing thrust, the loving arms with which the poor bride gave her bosom away. Tied up and twisted, gnarled and knotted with wrinkles, haggardly firm and unyielding, his eyes glowing like coals that still glow in the ashes of ruin, untottering Ahab stood forth in the clearness of the morn lifting his splintered helmet of a brow to the fair girl's forehead of heaven. O immortal infancy, an innocency of the azure, invisible winged creatures that frolic all around us, sweet child of air and sky, how oblivious were ye of old Ahab's close-coiled woe! But so have I seen little Marian and Martha, laughing-eyed elves, heedlessly gambled around their old sire, sporting with the circle of singed locks which grew on the marge of that burnt-out crater of his brain. Slowly crossing the deck from the scuttle, Ahab leaned over the side and watched how his shadow in the water sank and sank to his gaze, the more and more that he strove to pierce the profundity. But the lovely aroma in that enchanted air did at last seem to dispel, for a moment, the cankerous thing in his soul. That glad, happy air, that winsome sky, did at last stroke and caress him. The stepmother world, so long cruel, forbidding, now threw affectionate arms round his stubborn neck and did seem to joyously sob over him as if over one that, however willful and erring, she could yet find it in her heart to save and to bless. From beneath his slouched hat, Ahab dropped a tear into the sea, nor did all the Pacific contain such wealth as that one wee drop. Starbuck saw the old man, saw him, how he heavily leaned over the side, and he seemed to hear in his own true heart the measureless sobbing that stole out of the center of the serenity around. Careful not to touch him or be noticed by him, he yet drew near to him and stood there. Ahab turned. Starbuck! Sir? Oh, Starbuck, 
It is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky. On such a day, very much such a sweetness as this, I struck my first whale, a boy harpooner of eighteen, forty, forty, forty years ago, ago, forty years of continual whaling, forty years of privation and peril and storm time, forty years on the pitiless sea, and for forty years has Ahab forsaken the peaceful land, for forty years to make war on the horrors of the deep. I and yes, Starbuck, out of those forty years I have not spent three ashore. When I think of this life I have led, the desolation of solitude it has been, the masoned walled town of a captain's exclusiveness, which admits but small entrance to any sympathy from the green country without. Oh, weariness, heaviness, Guinea coast slavery of solitary command. When I think of all this, only half suspected, not so keenly known to me before, and now how for forty years I have fed upon dry salted fare, fit emblem of the dry nourishment of my soil, when the poorest landsman has had fresh fruit to his daily hand and broken the world's fresh bread to my moldy crusts. Away, whole oceans away from that young girl wife I wedded past fifty and sailed for Cape Horn the next day, leaving but one dent in my marriage pillow. Wife? Wife? Rather a widow with her husband alive. I, I widowed that poor girl when I married her, Starbuck. And then the madness, the frenzy, the boiling blood and the smoking brow, with which, for a thousand lowerings, old Ahab has furiously, foamingly chased his prey. More a demon than a man. I, I... What a forty years, fool, fool, old fool, has old Ahab been. Why this strife of the chase? Why weary and palsy the arm at the oar and the iron and the lance? How the richer or better is Ahab now? Behold, O oh, Starbuck, is it not hard that with this weary load I bear, one poor leg should have been snatched from under me? Here, brush this old hair aside. It blinds me that I seem to weep. Lock so gray did never grow but from out some ashes. But do I look very old, so very, very old, Starbuck? I feel deadly faint, bowed and humped as though I were Adam. Staggering beneath the piled centuries since paradise. God, 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 crack my heart, stave my brain, mockery, mockery. Bitter, biting mockery of gray hairs, have I lived enough joy to wear ye, and seem and feel thus intolerably old? Close. Stand close to me, Starbuck. Let me look into a human eye. It is better than to gaze into sea or sky, better than to gaze upon God. By the green land, 
by the bright hearthstone. This is the magic glass, man. I see my wife and my child in thine eye. No, no, stay on board, on board. Lower not when I do, when branded Ahab gives chase to Moby Dick. That hazard shall not be thine. No, no, not with the faraway home I see in that eye. Oh, my captain, my captain, noble soul, grand old heart after all, why should anyone give chase to that hated fish? Away with me, let us fly these deadly waters, let us home, wife and child too are Starbucks, wife and child of his brotherly, sisterly, playfellow youth, even as thine, sir, are the wife and child of thy loving, longing, paternal old age. Away! Let us away! This instant let me alter the course. How cheerily, how hilariously, oh, my captain, would we bowl on our way to see old Nantucket again. I think, sir, they have some such mild blue days even as this in Nantucket. They have, they have, I have seen them some summer days in the morning about this time. Yes, it is his noon nap now. The boy vivaciously wakes, sits up in bed, and his mother tells him of me, of cannibal old me, how I am abroad upon the deep, but will yet come back to dance him again. Tis my Mary, my Mary herself. She promised that my boy every morning should be carried to the hill to catch the first glimpse of his father's sail. Yes, yes, no more. It is done. We head for Nantucket. Come, my captain, study out the course and let us away. See, see, the boy's face from the window, the boy's hand on the hill. But Ahab's glance was averted. Like a blighted fruit tree he shook and cast his last cindered apple to the soil. What is it? What nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What cousining, hidden lord and master, and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me, that against all natural lovings and longings, I so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all the time? recklessly making me ready to do what in my own proper natural heart I durst not so much as dare. Is Ahab Ahab? Is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? But if the great sun move not of himself, but is as an errand boy in heaven, nor one single star can revolve, but by some invisible power, how then can this one small heartbeat, this one small brain think thoughts, unless God does that beating, God does that thinking, does that living, and not I? By heaven, man, we are turned round and round in this world, like yonder windlass, and fate is the handspike. And all the time, lo, that smiling sky, and this unsounded sea, Look, see yon albacore, who put it into him to chase and fang that flying fish? Where do murderers go, man, 
Who's to doom when the judge himself is dragged to the bar? But it is a mild, mild wind and a mild-looking sky, and the air smells now as if it blew from a faraway meadow. They have been making hay somewhere under the slopes of the Andes, Starbuck, and the mowers are sleeping among the new-mown hay. Sleeping? Aye, toil we how we may, we all sleep at last on the field. Sleep? Aye, and rust amid greenness, as last year's sighs flung down and left in the half-cut swaths. Starbuck! But blanched to a corpse's hue with despair, the mate had stolen away. Ahab crossed the deck to gaze over on the other side, but started at two reflected, fixed eyes in the water there. Fadala was motionlessly leaning over the same rail. Chapter 133 The Chase First Day That night, in the mid-watch, when the old man, as his wont at intervals, stepped forth from the scuttle in which he leaned, and went to his pivot hole, he suddenly thrust out his face fiercely, snuffing up the sea air as a sagacious ship's dog will, in drawing nigh to some barbarous isle. He declared that a whale must be near. Soon that peculiar odor, sometimes to a great distance given forth by the living sperm whale, was palpable to all the watch. Nor was any mariner surprised when, after inspecting the compass, and then the dog vane, and then ascertaining the precise bearing of the odor as nearly as possible, Ahab rapidly ordered the ship's course to be slightly altered and the sail to be shortened. The acute policy dictating these movements was sufficiently vindicated at daybreak. By the sight of a long sleek on the sea directly and lengthwise ahead, smooth as oil and resembling in the pleated watery wrinkles bordering it, the polished metallic-like marks of some swift tide rip at the mouth of a deep, rapid stream. Man the mastheads! Call all hands! Thundering with the butts of three clubbed handspikes on the forecastle deck, Daegu roused the sleepers with such judgment claps that they seemed to exhale from the scuttle. So instantaneously did they appear with their clothes in their hands. What'd you see? cried Ahab, flattening his face to the sky. Nothing, nothing, sir, was the sound hailing down in reply. To gallant sails, stun sails, alow and aloft, and on both sides. All sail being set, he now cast loose the lifeline, reserved for swaying him to the main royal masthead. And in a few moments, they were hoisting him thither, when, while but two-thirds of the way aloft, and while peering ahead through the horizontal vacancy between the main topsail and the top gallant sail, he raised a gull-like cry in the air. There she blows! There she blows! A hump like a snow hill! It's Moby Dick! Fired by the cry which seemed simultaneously taken up by the three lookouts, 
The men on deck rushed to the rigging to behold the famous whale they had so long been pursuing. Ahab had now gained his final perch, some feet above the other lookouts. Tashtego standing just beneath him on the cap of the topgallant mast, so that the Indian's head was almost on a level with Ahab's heel. From this height, the whale was now seen some mile or so ahead, at every roll of the sea revealing his high, sparkling hump, and regularly jetting his silent spout into the air. To the credulous mariners, it seemed the same silent spout they had so long ago beheld in the moonlit Atlantic and Indian oceans. "'And did none of ye see it before?' cried Ahab, hailing the perched men all around him. "'I saw him almost that same instant, sir, that Captain Ahab did, and I cried out,' said Tashtego. "'Not the same instant, not the same, no, the doubloon is mine.' Fate reserved the doubloon for me. I only, none of ye could have raised the white whale first. There she blows. There she blows. There she blows. There again. There again. He cried in long-drawn, lingering, methodic tones, attuned to the gradual prolongings of the whale's visible jets. He's going to sound in stunsails. Down top gallant sails, stand by three boats. Mr. Starbuck, remember, stay on board and keep the ship. Helm there, luff, luff a point. So, steady man, steady. There go flukes. No, no, only black water. All ready the boats there? Stand by, stand by. Lower me, Mr. Starbuck. Lower, lower. Quick, quicker, and he slid through the air to the deck. He is heading straight to leeward, sir, cried Stubb. Right away from us, cannot have seen the ship yet. Be dumb, man, stand by the braces, hard down the helm. Brace up, shiver her, shiver her. So, well that, boats, boats. Soon all the boats but Starbucks were dropped and all the boat sails set, all the paddles plying with rippling swiftness, shooting to leeward, and Ahab heading the onset. A pale death glimmer lit up Fadala's sunken eyes, a hideous motion gnawed his mouth. Like noiseless nautilus shells, their light prows sped through the sea, but only slowly they neared the foe. As they neared him, the ocean grew still more smooth, seemed drawing a carpet over its waves, seemed a noon meadow, so serenely it spread. At length, the breathless hunter came so nigh his seemingly unsuspecting prey that his entire dazzling hump was distinctly visible, sliding along the sea as if an isolated thing, and continually set in a revolving ring of finest fleecy greenish foam. He saw the vast, involved wrinkles of the slightly projecting head beyond. Before it, far out on the soft, Turkish, rugged waters, went the glistening white shadow from his broad, milky forehead, a musical rippling playfully accompanying the shade, and behind, 
the blue waters interchangeably flowed over into the moving valley of his steady wake, and on either hand bright bubbles arose and danced by his side. But these were broken again by the light toes of hundreds of gay fowl softly feathering the sea, alternate with their fitful flight, and like to some flagstaff rising from the painted hull of an argosy, the tall but shattered pole of a recent lance projected from the white whale's back, and at intervals one of the cloud of soft-toed fowls hovering, and to and fro skimming like a canopy over the fish, silently perched and rocked on this pole, the long tail feathers streaming like pennons. A gentle joyousness, a mighty mildness of repose and swiftness invested the gliding whale. Not the white bull Jupiter swimming away with ravished Europa clinging to his graceful horns. His lovely, leering eyes sideways intent upon the maid, with smooth, bewitching fleetness, rippling straight for the nuptial bower in Crete. Not Jove, not that great majesty supreme, did surpass the glorified white whale as he so divinely swam. On each soft side... Coincident with the parted swell that but once leaving him then flowed so wide away. On each bright side the whale shed off enticings. No wonder there had been some among the hunters who namelessly transported and allured by all this serenity had ventured to assail it, but had fatally found that quietude but the vesture of tornadoes. Yet calm, Enticing calm, O whale, thou glidest on, to all who, for the first time, eye thee, no matter how many in that same way thou mayst have bejuggled and destroyed before. And thus, through the serene tranquillities of the tropical sea, among waves of whose hand-clappings were suspended by exceeding rapture, Moby Dick moved on still withholding from sight the full terrors of his submerged trunk, entirely hiding the wrenched hideousness of his jaw. But soon the forepart of him slowly rose from the water. For an instant his whole marbleized body formed a high arch, like Virginia's natural bridge, and warningly waving his bannered flukes in the air, the grand god revealed himself, sounded, and went out of sight. Hoveringly halting and dipping on the wing, the white sea fowls longingly lingered over the agitated pool that he left. With oars apeak and paddles down, the sheets of their sails adrift, the three boats now stilly floated, awaiting Moby Dick's reappearance. An hour, said Ahab, standing rooted in his boat's stern, and he gazed beyond the whale's place towards the dim blue spaces and wide wooing vacancies to leeward. It was only an instant, for again his eyes seemed whirling round in his head as he swept the watery circle. The breeze now freshened. The sea began to swell. The birds! The birds! cried Tashtego. In long Indian file, As when herons take wing, 
the white birds were now all flying towards Ahab's boat, and when within a few yards began fluttering over the water there, wheeling round and round with joyous expectant cries. Their vision was keener than man's. Ahab could discover no sign in the sea. But suddenly, as he peered down and down into its depths, he profoundly saw a white living spot no bigger than a white weasel. With wonderful celerity uprising and magnifying as it rose till it turned, and then there were plainly revealed two long crooked rows of white glistening teeth floating up from the undiscoverable bottom. It was Moby Dick's open mouth and scrolled jaw, his vast shadowed bulk still half blending with the blue of the sea. The glittering mouth yawned beneath the boat like an open-doored marble tomb, and giving one sidelong sweep with his steering oar, Ahab whirled the craft aside from this tremendous apparition. Then, calling upon Fadala to change places with him, went forward to the bows, and seizing Perth's harpoon, commanded his crew to grasp their oars and stand by to stern. Now, by reason of this timely spinning round the boat upon its axis, its bow, by anticipation, was made to face the whale's head while yet under water. But as if perceiving this stratagem, Moby Dick, with that malicious intelligence ascribed to him, sideliningly transplanted himself, as it were, in an instant, shooting his pleated head lengthwise beneath the boat. Through and through, through every plank and each rib, it thrilled for an instant, the whale obliquely lying on his back in the manner of a biting shark, slowly and feelingly taking its bows full within his mouth, so that the long, narrow, scrolled lower jaw curled high up into the air, and one of the teeth caught in a rowlock. The bluish pearl white of the inside of the jaw was within six inches of Ahab's head, and reached higher than that. In this attitude, the white whale now shook the slight cedar as a mildly cruel cat her mouse. With unastonished eyes, Fadala gazed and crossed his arms, but the tiger-yellow crew were tumbling over each other's heads to gain the uttermost stern. And now, while both elastic gunnels were springing in and out as the whale dallied with the doomed craft in this devilish way, and from his body being submerged beneath the boat, he could not be darted at from the bows, for the bows were almost inside of him, as it were. And while the other boats involuntarily paused, as before a quick crisis impossible to withstand, then it was that monomaniac Ahab, furious with this tantalizing vicinity of his foe, which placed him all alive and helpless in the very jaws he hated, frenzied with all this, he seized the long bone with his naked hands and wildly strove to wrench it from its gripe. As now he thus vainly strove, the jaw slipped from him. The frail gunnels bent in, collapsed and snapped, as both jaws, like an enormous shears, sliding further aft, bit the craft completely in twain, and locked themselves fast again in the sea, midway between the two floating wrecks. 
These floated aside, the broken ends drooping, the crew at the stern wreck clinging to the gunnels and striving to hold fast to the oars to lash them across. At that preluding moment, ere the boat was yet snapped, Ahab, the first to perceive the whale's intent, by the crafty upraising of his head, a movement that loosed his hold for the time. At that moment, his hand had made one final effort to push the boat out of the bite. But only slipping further into the whale's mouth and tilting over sideways as it slipped, the boat had shaken off his hold on the jaw, spilled him out of it as he leaned to the push, and so he fell flat-faced upon the sea. Ripplingly withdrawing from his prey, Moby Dick now lay at a little distance, vertically thrusting his oblong white head up and down in the billows, and at the same time slowly revolving his whole spindled body, so that when his vast wrinkled forehead rose some twenty or more feet out of the water, the now rising swells, with all their confluent waves, dazzlingly broke against it vindictively tossing their shivered spray still higher into the air. So in a gale, but the half-baffled channel billows only recoil from the base of the Eddystone, triumphantly to overleap its summit with their scud. This motion is peculiar to the sperm whale. It receives its designation, pitch-poling, from its being likened to that preliminary up-and-down poise of the whale lance in the exercise called pitch-pulling, previously described. By this motion, the whale must best and most comprehensively view whatever objects may be encircling him. But soon, resuming his horizontal attitude, Moby Dick swam swiftly round and round the wrecked crew, sideways churning the water in his vengeful wake, as if lashing himself up to still another and more deadly assault. The sight of the splintered boat seemed to madden him, as the blood of grapes and mulberries cast before Antiochus's elephants in the book of Maccabees. Meanwhile, Ahab, half-smothered in the foam of the white whale's insolent tail, and too much of a cripple to swim, though he could still keep afloat, even in the heart of such a whirlpool as that, Helpless Ahab's head was seen, like a tossed bubble which the least chance shock might burst. From the boat's fragmentary stern, Fadala incuriously and mildly eyed him. The clinging crew at the other drifting end could not succor him. More than enough was it for them to look to themselves. For so revolvingly appalling was the white whale's aspect, and so planetarily swift the ever-contracting circles he made that he seemed horizontally swooping upon them. And though the other boats, unharmed, still hovered hard by, still they dared not pull into the eddy to strike, lest that should be the signal for the instant destruction of the jeopardized castaways, Ahab and all. Nor in that case could they themselves hope to escape, with straining eyes, then, they remained on the outer edge of the direful zone, whose center had now become the old man's head. Meantime, 
From the beginning, all this had been descried from the ship's mastheads, and squaring her yards, she had borne down upon the scene, and was now so nigh that Ahab in the water hailed her. Sail on the! But at that moment, a breaking sea dashed on him from Moby Dick and whelmed him for the time. But struggling out of it again, and chancing to rise on a towering crest, he shouted, Sail on the whale! Drive him off! The Pequod's prows were pointed, and breaking up the charmed circle, she effectually parted the white whale from his victim. As he sullenly swam off, the boats flew to the rescue. Dragged into Stubbs' boat with bloodshot, blinded eyes, the white brine caking in his wrinkles, the long tension of Ahab's bodily strength did crack, and helplessly he yielded to his body's doom. For a time, lying all crushed in the bottom of Stubbs' boat, like one trodden underfoot of herds of elephants, far inland, nameless wails came from him, as desolate sounds from out ravines. But this intensity of his physical prostration did but so much the more abbreviate it. In an instant's compass, great hearts sometimes condense to one deep pang, the sum total of those shallow pains kindly diffused through feebler men's whole lives. And so, such hearts, though summary in each one's suffering, still, if the gods decree it, in their lifetime aggregate a whole age of woe, wholly made up of instantaneous intensities, for even in their pointless centers, those noble natures contain the entire circumferences of inferior souls. The harpoon, said Ahab, halfway rising and draggingly leaning on one bended arm. Is it safe? Aye, sir, for it was not darted. This is it, said Stubb, showing it. Lay it before me. Any missing men? One, two, three, four, five. There were five oars, sir, and here are five men. That's good. Help me, man. I wish to stand. So, so, I see him. There, there, going to leeward still. What a leaping spout. Hands off from me. The eternal sap runs up in Ahab's bones again. Set the sail, out the oars, the helm. It is often the case that when a boat is stove, its crew, being picked up by another boat, help to work that second boat, and the chase is thus continued with what is called double-banked oars. It was thus now. But the added power of the boat did not equal the added power of the whale, for he seemed to have treble-banked his every fin, swimming with a velocity which plainly showed that if now, under these circumstances, pushed on, the chase would prove an indefinitely prolonged, if not a hopeless one. Nor could any crew endure for so long a period such an unintermitted, intense straining at the oar, a thing barely tolerable only in some one brief vicissitude. The ship itself, then, as it sometimes happens, 
offered the most promising intermediate means of overtaking the chase. Accordingly, the boats now made for her and were soon swayed up to their cranes, the two parts of the wrecked boat having been previously secured by her, and then hoisting everything to her side and stacking her canvas high up and sideways outstretching it with stunsails like the double-jointed wings of an albatross, the Pequod bore down in the leeward wake of Moby Dick. At the well-known methodic intervals, the whale's glittering spout was regularly announced from the manned mastheads, and when he would be reported just as gone down, Ahab would take the time, and then pacing the deck, binnacle watch in hand, so soon as the last second of the allotted hour expired, his voice was heard. Whose is the doubloon now? Do you see him? And if the reply was, No, sir, straight away he commanded them to lift him to his perch. In this way the day wore on. Ahab, now aloft and motionless, anon unrestingly pacing the planks. As he was thus walking, uttering no sound except to hail the men aloft, or to bid them hoist a sail still higher, or to spread one to a still greater breadth. Thus to and fro pacing, beneath his slouched hat, at every turn he passed his own wrecked boat, which had been dropped upon the quarter-deck, and lay there reversed, broken bow to shattered stern. At last he paused before it, and, as in an already overclouded sky, fresh troops of clouds will sometimes sail across, so over the old man's face there now stole some such added gloom as this. Stubb saw him pause, and perhaps intending, not vainly though, to evince his own unabated fortitude, and thus keep up a valiant place in his captain's mind, he advanced, and eyeing the wreck, exclaimed, the thistle the ass refused. It pricked his mouth too keenly, sir. Ha <laughs> ha! What soulless thing is this that laughs before a wreck? Man! Man! Did I not know thee brave as fearless fire? And as mechanical, I could swear thou wert a poltroon. Groan nor laugh should be heard before a wreck. Omen! The dictionary! If the gods think to speak out right to man, they will honorably speak out right, not shake their heads and give an old wife's darkling hint. Begone! Ye too are the opposite poles of one thing. Starbuck is stub reversed, and stub is Starbuck, and ye too are all mankind, and Ahab stands alone among the millions of the peopled earth nor gods, nor men, his neighbors. Cold, cold, I shiver. How now? Aloft there, do you see him? Sing out for every spout, though he spout ten times a second. The day was nearly done. Only the hem of his golden robe was rustling. Soon it was almost dark, but the lookout men still remained unset. Can't see the spout now, sir. Too dark, cried a voice from the air. How heading when last seen? As before, sir, straight to leeward. Good. He will travel slower now, tis night. 
Gown royals and top-gallant stunsels, Mr. Starbuck. We must not run over him before morning. He's making a passage now, and we may heave to a while. Helm there! Keep her full before the wind! Aloft! Come down! Mr. Stubb, send a fresh hand to the foremast head, and see it manned till morning. Then advancing towards the doubloon in the masthead, Men, this gold is mine, for I earned it, but I shall let it abide here till the white whale is dead. And then, whosoever of ye first raises him, upon the day he shall be killed, this gold is that man's. And if on that day I shall again raise him, then ten times its sum shall be divided among all of ye. Away now, the deck is thine, sir. And so saying, he placed himself halfway within the scuttle, and slouching his hat, stood there till dawn, except when at intervals rousing himself to see how the night wore on. This has been Moby Dick. Please join us next time as the chase goes into a second day. Who will get the doubloon, if anyone?